are so glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. And you have come in right in the middle of our study of 1 Peter. And over the last few weeks, we've been challenged. He has asked us to call us up into some difficult obediences. And sometimes he asked us to be a, um, a servant of God, but at the same time, to be, live as free. So we are to live in that tension of living as free people in Christ, but also to be a servant of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I didn't wake up this morning just pumped to serve. So I'm going to read this scripture over us, and we're going to start to setting our foundation on Jesus Christ, which is the perfect way to start to be able to live lives of submission and lives of servanthood. Isaiah 28, 16 says this, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. So will you all stand, fellowship, and let's sing this together. Sing this song. Christ is my firm foundation. The rock on which I stand. Everything around me shaking. I've never been more glad I put my faith in Jesus. He's never let me down. Oh 
Y'all can have a seat. My name is Becky Fries, and I lead our disability ministry here at Fellowship called Enable. Now, if you've been around Fellowship for a little bit, you might be thinking, wait, I thought that ministry was called one-to-one. And it was for a lot of years. But recently, we have changed the name as we've realized that our ministry no longer encompasses more just one-on-one relationships. We want our community of disabilities to experience community and the way that fellowship believes so strongly in community. And so we've changed the name to Enable. Um, A story that kind of shows that is this um, past year, we've watched um, one of our Fayette Kid boys who for years has been resistant to being in uh, his small group. But one of um, the boys from his small group came and started initiating a conversation and the boys bonded over Legos. And week after week, as they would build their Legos and form that relationship, the boy from his small group would encourage and invite him to come into small group with him. At first, he resisted. Small groups can feel overwhelming and intimidating. I don't know if y'all felt that before, but he he didn't want to go in. But over time, with his enable leader being there consistently to support and encourage him, and the boy from his small group building that relationship and inviting him in, he's recently started going to his small group, which may not seem that big to you guys, but we've spent years trying to help him feel like small group is a welcoming place where he can build the community with boys his age. So we have been so excited to see how the community and people together have worked to help him feel safe in his group. As I was thinking about this morning and what to share, the families and the kids that I get to spend time with each week just kept popping to mind the different stories of how God has influenced them and the work that he's doing in the ministry. And it's been so fun to see. I would love to share that with any of you guys. If you'd like to hear more, stop me in the hallway, email me. We can set up a time to talk about where God is working and what he's doing through our Enable ministry. Let me pray for us, and we will continue our worship this morning. God, we love you. We love that we get to come to a place and just calm our hearts and worship you. We pray that you would um, open our minds and our hearts to hear the message you have to say today, that you would speak to each one of us. In your name we pray, amen. about all of the the things that we try to place our identity in that don't satisfy, that don't hold up under the weight of life. 
we don't belong to those things. If we're followers of Jesus, we belong to him. And we can build our identity on him. So let's sing this together to remind ourselves of where our identity is. I don't belong to riches, to treasures that don't satisfy. Power and pleasure, it always run dry, but I belong to Oh, uh-huh. 
You may be new to fellowship this morning, or you may have been here many, many weeks, many years, uh, but often, sometimes we forget. We forget, why do we gather? Why do we pray? Why do we sing together and read his word together? And I think Bruce Benedict says this well in this quote. We call people to stand in the glorious victory of the cross, to raise their hands in a united gesture of praise, to confess their sins with humble spirits and bodies, to be sent out in mission, filled with confidence and assurance that the Holy Spirit is powerfully present and at work. And so when we say these words together week to week, we are declaring truths, and we are doing all of these things at once. And so will you stand with me, and we'll start by humbly confessing together. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. And this is the glorious victory of the cross. This is evidence the Holy Spirit is at work among us. So church, believe the good news. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a Savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to me. Take my moments in my Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of my love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for me. Take my
everyone. Uh, my name is Jimmy Cook. I'm the elementary worship leader here. Uh, I think my family's coming up. This is my wife, Katie. And in the baptistry here is my youngest son, Silas, and then my oldest son, Jude, and my middle son, Elliot. Uh, Silas is one of the most joyful people I know and one of the most energetic people I know. Uh, and he made one of the most joyous decisions uh, that he'll ever make in his life just two weeks ago. He, we've been talking about baptism uh, since my middle son, Elliot, was baptized. And two weeks ago, he decided that he wanted to follow Jesus. And so, Silas, is it your confession this morning that Jesus came and lived a life without sin, that he died to pay the penalty for your sin, and that he rose again so that we can have life forever with him? And you're telling everybody here that you want to follow Jesus with your whole life. Yes. Okay. So it's my privilege as your dad and as your brother in Christ to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. so sweet to see another life consecrated, another life set apart for God. Let's keep singing this together.
Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of God, of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the word of the Lord. If you wouldn't mind, remain standing for me. As you're sitting down, we're going to be talking about family this morning, a little old school here. Introduce yourself to the person around you. Say good morning. Say what's up. If you don't know them, you might have introduced yourself. Shake hands, fist bump, whatever you got. All right, all right, you can grab a seat. Just by this, this is completely unplanned, the, the greeting everybody and what I'm doing now, just by, by show of hands. Um, how many of you actually enjoy uh, the, the greeting, turn and greet somebody around you, that kind of thing? How many of you like what we just did? How many of you that was just like really painful for you, right? You can, it's okay, you can raise your hand. Okay, I'm just curious. I saw more likes, all right, I saw more likes. Um, my name's Garland, glad to be with you, uh, one of the pastors here. Um, and when, when I, when I kind of consider the world that we live in, and especially by virtue of technology and the, the ability for us to get access to what's going on all over the world immediately, like we can see some of the good stuff, but a lot of the brokenness, a lot of the hurt, a lot of the pain from all over the world, and we get it constantly sent to us because of you know, the way that news is uh, filtered now and the way that we receive it by social media and Twitter. And it can make us feel connected to even things that are happening on the other side of the world. And I think what it causes for many of us is this sense of, it's like a palpable sense of anxiety and unease about where things seem to be headed. And that's true for people on both sides of the aisle. Like both sides of the political spectrum, there's this sort of fear and this unease as we are connected to these broad stories of hurt and grief and pain from all over the world. And I think what it creates in us is this desire to see change, this desire to see uh, society and culture move in a better direction than it is now. And I think oftentimes what we do, because we're so connected to all these things and because it's such global, so global in scale, I think we say, 
Okay, we need to have some sort of grand legislation or we need to get a, a new leader that'll take us to new places or overhaul the legal system and get a, a, a ruling from the courts in our favor. We gotta do grand cosmic kind of global things to solve these grand problems. And what I've noticed is an age-old adage has sort of reemerged. I'm hearing it from New York Times and from like, you know, Christian writers and thinkers. And it's the, this age-old saying, if you really want to change culture, if you really want to change society, it actually starts local. Like it starts with like communities and even families. Uh, Ed Haddon is an uh, uh, entrepreneur, business consultant, and I think he captures the spirit of what I think a lot of us feel really well. Uh, hear how he says it. He says, our greatest impact starts at a very local, personal level. And he acknowledges this seems very at odds with the modern definition of success in the global world. One of the products of technology has been a widening of our unit of reference and outlook from our home and community to the entire planet. We feel that we aren't really having an impact unless we are helping a large number of people. And he acknowledges it is this idea that I find so disempowering that somehow being local is not enough. And yet, again, from the Times and Gospel Coalition Christian writers, a refrain. If you really want to change culture, if you really want to change society, it has to get down to the nitty-gritty stuff of life, like down to communities and neighborhoods and even down to, like, family. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we continue our First Peter series this morning. Now, if you, if you haven't been with us, if you're trying to get caught up, let me help you get caught up a little bit on what we've been saying and what we've been seeing in this ancient letter. I've been loving studying this letter. What Peter has said at the very beginning, we, we looked at it a few weeks ago, was he calls his community of Jesus followers to a radical new identity. He says, you are elect exiles. You are chosen foreigners. Special, but kind of weird everywhere you go. Embrace it. And this second major section of the letter to this community in what we now call Turkey, used to be part of the ancient Roman Empire, it began this way. And it uh, the marker for this section is dear friends in the NIV or beloved, I think, in most translations. Dear friends. And this is the, the statement that kind of guides everything that follows. He says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Why? Because they crush your soul. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans, you uh, special weird ones, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Michael, a few weeks ago, showed us this quote from Keller, and I think it captures what Peter is saying so well. Peter assumes that if you want to live the way of the exile, you want to follow Jesus radically, passionately, in a culture that doesn't understand, you need to have a couple of expectations. One is that to follow him will be, at times, extraordinarily offensive and outrageous to a pagan culture around you. To say Jesus is the only way, we follow him as the only God and the only path to salvation, that's offensive, it's outrageous. And yet, we would be winsome and compelling and incredibly attractive at the same time. What we're gonna do as we dive into this passage is we're gonna see in three ways, loyalty, beauty, and honor, how the early Jesus community living this out was both of those. Outrageous, 
and compelling at the same time. You have your Bibles, open them up. First Peter chapter 3, your digital device, whatever you've got, let's get to work. Let's dive in. Now, you heard Becky read it earlier, and my bet is, as I just read this passage, my bet is in the modern culture that we live in, something may trigger in many of you, I know what's outrageous. Let me just read it. Wives, in the same way, submit to your own husbands. And I think right off the bat, for many of us in the room, we might have a difficulty understanding the rest of the passage because we go, that's, okay, I know, you said offensive and attractive. That must be the outrageous part. That must be the offensive part. Now, what we have to do is we've got to understand what's going on culturally before we can assess the passage. We're gonna come back to that in a minute, okay? But first, let's try to peel back and understand. Let's drop into uh, the Asia Minor province in the Roman Empire back in about the the mid-50s AD, okay? What's going on? Now, it's in the past. I think you can see it. Most scholars agree that what's being addressed here is a situation where you have uh, a wife who has placed her allegiance, her loyalty in Jesus as king and is rejecting the Roman pantheon of gods, but her husband has not. So you have a wife who's come to faith in Jesus and is giving her loyalty to Jesus as king. But that's not the case with the rest of her family, including her husband. Now, you gotta put yourself in this world. This is a world where every city you go to, there are zero Christians. Like, this is within two decades of of, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. So in every city they walk into, there are no Christians. And so you have a situation like this happening all the time. Now, here's why this is outrageous in the ancient Roman world. For Peter to even address the wives is outrageous. We're going to see what he says is even more outrageous. Here's why. This is is Plutarch. He was a uh, contemporary of Peter. Um, He was a great moral thinker, philosopher, and writer. Had a huge impact on both ancient culture and even into the modern Renaissance period. And here's his comment talking to the wives, okay? Buckle up. Here he goes. He says, every activity makes clear the sovereignty and choice of the husband. What is outrageous for Peter is he's addressing the wives, and in the Roman culture of their day, a wife has no right, no authority to adopt religious practices or gods of her own. She must embrace the gods of her husband. In fact, look how, look how far it goes. That wife is worthless and unfit, who is a sad countenance when her husband is eager to make jokes and be cheerful, or who makes jokes and laughs when he is serious. The first behavior reveals an unpleasant character. The second, an inconsiderate one. A wife should have no emotion of her own, but should share in the seriousness and playfulness and melancholy and laughter of her husband. Ladies, how we feeling? Should we cut and paste that to a Mother's Day card for next year? Give that to you? Um, Feeling good? So I want you to notice nothing of this sentiment is what you see in this passage. In fact, for Peter to even speak to them. And notice what he doesn't say. It's outrageous to not say what I'm about to say. What Peter should say is, wives, you better go get in line. We're not trying to disrupt society here. You know your place. Let's tell you what, send the husband to me and I'll try to work with him. No. Peter addresses the wives. And he doesn't say, he doesn't say, yeah, go along to get along. Keep worshiping those gods. No. He says, them, no, you, you honor Jesus, and you do so in such a way that you're going to win him over. 
That's how loyal you are to your new king. Outrageous in the ancient Roman world. A few verses later, he will say to all of the community, revere Jesus, revere Christ as the king. No one else. Outrageous. Um, Karen Jobes is a New Testament scholar. And I want you to see how outrageous this is. It's not just that this is outrageous. It's that it's dangerous. This was considered incredibly dangerous, what Peter's wading into here. Hear her interactions. She says, in the Greco-Roman society, it was expected that the wife would have no friends of her own and would worship the gods of her husband. Now, here's why it's dangerous. Notice, because prosperity and well-being were seen as dependent on religious forces, disorder in the home was a threat not only to the family, but to society. If you dishonor the gods, if you have a family member who dishonors the gods, society will crumble around you. The gods will be mad, and they're gonna punish us. This is dangerous stuff. Not only that, if she, can, if she persists, and the people outside here, but the husband will feel embarrassed. He'll, have, he'll suffer criticism for not managing his household. It could damage his standing. Outrageously offensive, in fact, even dangerous. Yet Peter speaks to these wives. He says, you honor Christ as your king. Now, I want you to notice. Here's why it's attractive. He doesn't tell the wives, all right, now that you're following Jesus, it's time to assert your rights. It's time to go in there and say, you take a hike. You're done. I'm done with this. I'm done with you. No, no, look at what he says. This is so winsome and so compelling. He says, I want you to go and I want you to love your husband in such a way that without words, notice the play on word with words, he's disbelieving to the word and you win him without words. That you, the way that you live your life would demonstrate that there is a God worth following. That's how I want you to, that's how attractive and compelling I want you to be. You, you tracking with it? You seeing what's going on in the culture? Now here, what Peter does not do is he doesn't wade into the nuance of, okay, Clark mentioned these last week, okay, but yeah, what if? He trusts the community filled by the Spirit with the whole counsel of the Scriptures to make the wisest decision possible when the now what's happen. And can, we, can I just say, before we move on, I know that in, this, in a room this size, there's a lot of people that either have personally in, gone through or know someone and love someone that's gone through a broken marriage. You're, as, as one of your pastors, we sat in the living room across the table from broken marriages, and it's always painful, and it's always, it always hurts, and it's always difficult. And we, with this counsel of the scriptures and God's spirit and the community of God's people, we trust that we together can make the wise decision. And I recognize that for, for many of you, it's gonna, it's, this, this puts a, a difficult ask. But what Peter is saying to these wives is, you will show your husband that all of the gods that he worships, there's no life there by the way you live. Your allegiance, your loyalty is to Jesus first. Outrageous, and yet really compelling. The second one, he addresses standards of beauty. Now, I don't want to oversell it. Uh, it's not going to stop me. Uh, I don't want to oversell it. Um, I think if you would lean in in the next eight minutes or so, it very well might change your life. Like, I, I don't want to oversell it, but if you would lean in and really begin to take seriously what Peter is saying here. 
it might set you free. It might change your life. Okay? Notice what he says. He addresses beauty. And we're going to see both things again, outrageous and yet really compelling and winsome. Notice what he says. He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. And then he lists things in the Roman culture that were status markers, elaborate hairstyles, wearing of gold jewelry, fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That is of great worth in God's sight. Let's make it simple. He says, don't be fooled by the externals. Don't put your worth in the externals. Put them in the internal. Your character, your heart, that's that's who you are. That's where your worth is. See, in the Roman Empire, this is a very strange thing to say. In the Roman Empire, the way that, particularly a woman, but also true for men, the way that a person would dress said something about who they are. It said something about their status. It said something about their nobility. It said something about their availability. It said something about them as a person. Now, can I, just, can I just ask a simple question? Has anything really changed? I mean, oftentimes we've got to do a little work to kind of get into the world of the ancient text. Has anything changed? I'm going to make an assertion here. I'm going to assert that the modern American, especially, but Western, especially American culture, we are the most obsessed with the externals of any culture in human history. The most obsessed with externals to the exclusion of the internals, with the minimization of the internals than any culture in human history. Now, I'm going to defend it, try to prove that to you. Give you three reasons, I think, of how we got here. The first is technology. Technology. See, there was a time in many of your lives, in fact, I can remember a time before internet, there was a time in most of our lives, especially if you're of a certain age and above, where the only people that were on screens, the only people that were on magazines and people that you would see on billboards were a very chosen select few. Like New York and Hollywood selected the beautiful people. They went on screens. They had an audience. And everyone else was just a regular old person. Like you would almost never see yourself on a screen. Even I can remember this, and I'm only a certain age. Um, I, where you would never see yourself on a screen unless you watched like a VHS home movie, and it was only the company of your family. There was only a few people, the beautiful people. They went on screens. They went on magazines. They had an audience. But because of technology, now everyone is on screen. Everyone is putting images of themselves out there. Everyone has an audience. I mean, in looking at, for these pictures here, it is shocking the amount of coaching you can get. Now, I should take some of the advice because I apparently have the worst Instagram account ever. Uh, that's what I've been told. But um, the amount of coaching you can get on how to post for Instagram appropriately, apparently the way you stand. They have posts about how to pose with your cat, how to pose with a dog. I mean, it's crazy. It's insane. What's crazy now is we are all, because of technology, we're all playing to an audience. What that does is it puts you in a beauty contest every single day. And maybe to make matters worse, the second part of our technology 
is it's still the case, I looked it up this week, that the pornography industry makes more money than all the sports leagues combined, still. Multi-billions of dollars a year industry in the United States. Think about what pornography does. Pornography trains your brain to only see the externals, to only see skin deep. It ne- pornography is not asking you to consider the character of the person, only the externals. We're the most obsessed culture in human history because of technology. Second, because of worldview. See, in a progressive culture, not traditional, in a progressive culture, you prize innovation. You prize technology. You prize development. You prize progress. And what that means is you prize youth, new. In a traditional culture, you prize age, wisdom, seasoning, Sorry, older folks in the room. We live in a progressive society, for better or worse. And what that's done is it has created this fight against aging. As people age, they feel this sense that, man, something's off here. And think of the amount of products, procedures that we have to fight the natural course of aging. As people get, and I'm, I'm, starting, to, I'm starting to feel it. You ever had that moment? when you pass by a mirror or a window or something and you see yourself and you go, oh my gosh. I had that like a week ago. Um, there's a, I taught some college students uh, in uh, the, their college kind of summer program and they asked some Q&A and one of them said, how old are you? And I said, how old do y'all think I am? One of them went, 50. And I was like, are you serious? And then I saw myself in my rear view mirror and I was like, oh my gosh, I look more like I'm 50 than I'm their age. Um, but we live in a progressive culture. And it's, it crushes many of us as we age. The third, let's just be honest, the third reason that we're the most obsessed is just wealth, stuff. Like we, gotta, we gotta be a little honest with ourselves. Most human beings that have lived on this planet, including hundreds of millions today, are just desperately trying to survive. Like hundreds of millions even now. And you know when you're just trying to survive, you know what fades away quickly? The cosmetic, polish. But it seems, and this is, this is scary if not sad, the more a culture accumulates, actually, the less they care about the weighty things of survival, and then the more the cosmetic becomes supreme. Polish becomes preeminent. Just our wealth has created for us the ability to buy the things we want and look the way we want and have the things that we want. We live in the most obsessed culture with the externals, and I think it's crushing us in a couple of ways. One, we're, we're almost always thinking about the externals. Uh, when you're getting ready, you don't look in the mirror. I never heard anybody say this. Never heard anybody go, how's my patience? You know, how's my hair? Uh, do these look good with this? I never heard anybody go, do I know how to love, be loved? No, it's all the externals. We're, we're always sizing people up. We're always comparing. We're always thinking about the externals. Because of pornography, many of us are constantly always seeing the body and the sexual appeal of people around us. But we're almost never honest. I still think that I could pass for a college student. But look at me. Um, we're almost never honest about it. 
Uh, we edit and re-edit and re-edit photographs that we put out there because we want it to look just right. Um, maybe worst of all, uh, we, if you're single in the room, you may pass by, you say you care about the character, but you may pass by dozens of perfect Jesus-following mates for you because nothing but the externals. But I want you to notice what Peter is saying. It's, it's shocking, and yet so winsome and compelling. He says, actually, you know what's of great worth to God? He sees in there. That's what he cares about. That's what he's after. That's what he notices. That's where your value is. It's unfading beauty. Notice it. Every other beauty dies. I had a doctor tell me, after 35, you're slowly dying. This is the only beauty that only gets better with age. It reminds me of a passage in the Old Testament. Uh, Samuel sent to anoint a new king. And as he sent, God tells him this. He says, don't be fooled by the externals. He says, for the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What if we saw other people this way? What if we saw ourselves this way? Can you imagine that might set you free from the rat race of comparison around you? amazingly different way to live. What if we just embrace the scriptures? Third, in honor. Now, we got to do a little grammar here, a little grammar work. The, uh, you okay with a little grammar? We'll just pass by it quickly then, okay? A little grammar work, okay? I got, I got them in the slides regardless, so you got to buckle up for four minutes of grammar. Here we go. Husbands. Now, the first question is in the same way. What's the antecedent for in the same way? What is he referring to? There's two options. Either it goes back up to 2 verse 12 or it goes back up to chapter 2 verse 17. Probably 17 is it. Honor everyone. So you can draw a little arrow from 3-7 in the same way up to 2-17 or 2-12. There's a little bit of debate about which is the antecedent for in the same way. Now, he doesn't supply a verb. The verb is rooted in the antecedent whatever he's going back to, but then he amplifies what he means with two, they're participle clauses. You don't have to care about that, but what does the participle clause do? It gives explanation for the main idea, and there's two here, all right? I want you to see it. The first he says is this, husbands, treat your wives with consideration as the weaker partners. Now, I get the translation here. Here's what it literally says. He says, husbands, in the same way, Live with your wives according to knowledge. And different uh, translations go different ways with that. According to knowledge as the weaker partner. Don't freak out when you see the weaker. What Peter is reflecting here, most scholars agree, is probably just the recognition that in general, women have a weaker physical constitution than men. That's probably what he actually is, is saying. Now, what does it mean to treat your wife according to knowledge as the weaker partner. The best way I can illustrate it is this. Um, these, these are our plastic plates, okay? And, I mean, we use these for a lot at our house. Uh, we throw them around. They don't really mean that much to us. The kids eat on them. They throw them. They go in the dishwasher. We, they're just, we treat them like that, okay? However, these are Sarah's, I found a picture online, okay? These are Sarah's grandmother's fine china. And when her grandmother passed away, uh, this was the one thing Sarah was like, man, that would be awesome if Sarah, she gave him to Sarah. And I got a terrible story of how I broke some. Um, but that's a different time. Uh, these are her, fine, her grandmother's fine china. What if, I, what if I threw them? 
right? We treat these according to knowledge. We treat these a certain way. We hand wash them. We hand dry them. Like even holding it now, I told Sarah last night, I said, I got, I got a, one of your grandma's uh, uh, plates for tomorrow. She goes, you didn't tell me. Why did you take it out? I said, I'll be, I'll be okay. Um, I'm gonna set it down. We treat it according to knowledge, right? This is what he's telling the husbands. Treat your wives like that. You gotta treat them that way. The second one's even more radical. This is outrageous in the Roman world. You, were, you saw Plutarch's quote earlier. He says, show them honor. Peter's talked about honor all over the place. It's important because in the Roman culture, it's an honor-shame culture where your standing in culture is built on your honor. You can be born with it. You can have it bestowed on you. You can earn it. Uh, it there's a lot of ways that it, that it worked, but it essentially established where you sit. So, of course, a slave is at the lowest position of honor, and Roman elite wealthy nobility are at the high position of honor, and it falls accordingly. Women had a dishonored place. In the Roman culture, if you wanted to show someone below you in the kind of pecking order honor, it required you to be dishonored. That you were only trying to impress the people above you so that you could get kind of promoted in honor. It was a game that they played. You didn't stoop down unless there was something in it for you. See what Peter's saying? For a Roman husband, have this read aloud at the gathered community as the church gathered. Hey, husbands, treat your wife according to knowledge. And then you honor them as co-heirs. They don't sit over there. They sit right here. You see it? Outrageous. And even has a, has a little bit of a bite to it. He goes, you want your prayers to be heard? This is how you treat your wives. Loyalty. Beauty and honor. Let's bring it to our world real fast. What if us as exiles in the room, Jesus followers? What if our primary allegiance was to Jesus and Jesus alone? How might that change how we live? Not career, not more money, not the next promotion, not kids' success, uh, not keeping up with the Joneses, not body. What if our primary allegiance was to Jesus? How about we look different? Specifically wives in the room, since the passage is addressing wives directly. Whether you have a Jesus-following husband or not, do you live with him in such a way that he would look at the way you live and treat him and go, man, Jesus is awesome. I want what she has. Is that how you live? Beauty. What if we actually took the Bible seriously and said, you know what, the world looks at the externals. God looks here. That's, where I'm gonna, that's, that's what I'm gonna pay attention to in myself and others. How might that change how we live? It might very well set you free from the constant game of comparison and anxiety. Honor. What if we actually honored everyone like 217 tells us to do? People that even disagree with us. Next week, we're gonna see, Peter's gonna turn around and say, you know you're, those enemies of yours that hurt you and malign you? Bless them. What if we did that? Jesus said it in the gospel. He said, take the dishonored seat. What if we just embraced it? More specifically to husbands in the room. He's talking to you specifically. Married husbands in the room. 
Do you treat your wives according to knowledge? Do you show them honor as a fellow heir? It's outrageous and yet really compelling at the same time. Peter's trying to create this kind of a community, a community where everyone's like-minded, sympathy, genuine brotherly love and affection, compassion, humility. Isn't this the kind of culture our world desperately wants? Isn't this what everybody's fighting for out there? This kind of a community where you can truly be known and truly be loved authentically? Isn't this what everybody's fighting for? Here's the problem. All of our wealth, all of our technology, it hadn't got us here. The conservatives hadn't got us here. Progressives hadn't got us here. Politics hadn't got us here. What gets us here? What unlocks that kind of a community? And as always, the answer is going to be found in the gospel of Jesus. Notice what he, what he told the husbands. As heirs with you of the precious gift of life. As heirs. What's an heir? An heir is somebody who is a part of a family. And as a result of their status in that family, they receive something of value. Peter actually began this letter talking about what we receive, our inheritance. An heir receives an inheritance. And he began at the very beginning of this letter talking about our inheritance. I want you to see it. Here's how he started the letter. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's caused us to be born again. He's brought us into the family. And it comes with some value. See it. That we would have a living hope and that we would obtain an inheritance. But what is this inheritance? Notice it. It can't spoil It can't be squandered on you. It only gets better with age. Look at what he says. It's imperishable, undefiled, won't fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Earlier we sang, now I belong to his kingdom, an heir to riches untold. With value that's given and victory written, I belong to Christ. We sang that, right? You see it? What if we just trusted that in the gospel, your worth, your beauty, your value, your honor is yours lavishly? It fuels and enables us to pour that out in our families, our neighborhoods, our city, our country, and our world. Let's do that, shall we? Let me pray. Father, you're good, and we bless your name. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's caused us to be born again to a living hope, to obtain an inheritance. You've bestowed on us more than we could ever imagine. Honor and glory and beauty and value. As Jesus was sent out to the place of dishonor, Jesus, you took our place, assigned as a criminal and an outcast that we might be brought into the family and given an inheritance that was yours. You became poor that we might inherit riches. That fuels us to do the same. Help us to live as faithful exiles who are chosen in the nitty-gritty of life. Pray this in your name, Jesus, our King. Amen.
and strange, uh, but that honors our King, Jesus. Thank you so much for being here this week. If you'd like someone to pray for you to my left, to your right, you can go through these doors and up the stairs. There are people in our prayer room who would love to pray with you. Have a great week, fellowship.